welcome to a very special Compassion Radio 360. Joining us for the second week of Advent in our special series, welcome back to the microphone as we dig back into the Christmas story. Good morning. It's great to be here. The first week in this series, we did a story on Abraham and Isaac, which for me is kind of the beginning of the Christmas story because so much was laid out that God was intending to do and perform himself. He refused to take Abraham's sacrifice of his son, but he did receive his sacrifice of his willingness and his obedience. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to provide. He's still in the business of providing salvation for those who will come to him. Mm -hmm. The path has been set. There will be a descendant. He will be a king. He will be a priest. Mm -hmm. He will be a sacrifice. Oh, I completely agree with you. Every part of the Old Testament, we can find that Jesus is an integral part of it, even though his name is not specifically mentioned. The path of the Israelites is the path to the Messiah. So we can see that even in the very beginnings when Abraham offers Isaac. Messiah is the key word here. That's where we parachute into our next story. It's not the story of the Messiah. Mm. It is the story of the Messiahs that God sent to his people along the way, on the way to the ultimate Messiah, as we'll see in today's story. Mm. So this is the second week of Advent, and the second candle, again, is purple. This candle represents faith. The story that you're going to tell today is a huge step of faith, I think, because (laughs) it's the story of the wise men. They had to step out in faith to make this incredible journey to find the king, the savior, the anointed one, without really knowing where they were going specifically or what they were going to find when they got there. They came from a long tradition of wise men, of magi, Mm -hmm. that had studied these things Mm -hmm. over centuries. Mm -hmm. They didn't come out of nowhere. They are rooted in the history, and not just the history of the world, but the history of the scriptures. And I make that link in the story. Mm -hmm. They had to do the research, and they had to do the study of the scriptures, of Mm -hmm. the ancient texts. They formulated a hypothesis. They came up with a plan. So to me... They became astronomers. Exactly. It is a culmination of intuition, the knowledge of these men. And the edict of a king. And the edict of a king. So you're talking about people that are set in motion because of great things that God set in motion centuries before. Mm -hmm. Let's read a couple of scriptures that help frame the story. Well, we're going to start in the book of Isaiah, not in the typical place that people would think to start for the Christmas story, but a prophecy that Isaiah made concerning a king that would begin the process of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Cyrus the king, over a hundred years before Cyrus was even on the scene. And he doesn't refer to a king, he refers to Cyrus. Cyrus, specifically by name. And I love in chapter 45, you can read this whole thing about restoration of Israel through Cyrus the king Mm -hmm. at the end of chapter 44 of Isaiah through the middle of 45. But there is a specific place in Isaiah 45 that I just really latched onto. It speaks to me about how personal God is. And it says, the God of Israel calls you by name. I call you by your name because of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I give a name to you, though you do not know me. And he says before that, the Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed 
whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to disarm kings, to open the doors before him, and the gates will not be shut. So God is calling Cyrus by name okay. over a hundred years before he's even on the scene, before he's born. Yeah. And that is fascinating to me. That says to me that God knows my name too. Yeah. He can call me by name just as easily. And he called him to do a special purpose for him, mm -hmm. that if there's anything else in the great conquerings of the King Cyrus, the empires that he absolutely decimated mm -hmm. and superseded, there's one above all of that which says, I, the King of Heaven, have anointed you for this purpose. Mm -hmm. So he's saying to his people, I've given this one man a higher calling, whether mm -hmm. he knows it or not. And yeah, he's going to know it because you can't look back throughout history and see your name in print and not take notice. Mm -hmm. There's something very, very specific that God wanted to say about this Cyrus, not just any Cyrus. Yeah. And to define what it means to be a faithful servant of his and exercise faith. In this case, obedience. The faith of Cyrus was God had spoken, so he was going to act. Mm-hmm. The faith of the wise men was, it was spoken by our king, and we were set in motion hundreds of years ago in our discipline. We are of a long tradition. There will come a time when our wisdom is needed, mm -hmm. and therefore be prepared, be on watch. And they exercised their faith by going. Yes, yes. We're going to jump back into the scripture. At the very end of Second Chronicles chapter 36, it says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. And Jeremiah talks about... It'll be specifically, specifically 70 years of yes. exile. The Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and also to put it in writing. That's important that mm -hmm. he put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord... The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem in Judea. Whoever among you of his people may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. So Cyrus is decreeing that he's going to rebuild the temple. He's proclaimed that this is a place of worship for all of the people and he's going to rebuild it. For the one true God. He's made that statement to all peoples in all languages that to the one true God I send these people to build that temple to mm -hmm. that God. Mm -hmm. Not just the God of the Jews. Mm -hmm. There is something that is like supersessional about this. He's already proclaiming that what happens there matters to all men. Mm -hmm. We continue that story in the first chapter of Ezra, where Ezra documents this whole history of what King Cyrus is doing. This is the very first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Tradition tells us that Daniel may have actually met the king when he entered the city. We know through scripture that Daniel has lived to be a very old man. He was very young when he went into captivity. And now he's an old man, and he's about to see the prophecy of the Lord completed and fulfilled in his own lifetime, which is amazing. So imagine what would happen if Daniel stood before King Cyrus. And with that, we present today's story, A Star in the Sky. Cyrus leaned back on the throne of Babylon as the words swirled in his mind. The scribes record that he inclined his face to the heavens as in transport. All the satraps and diviners, the wise men and the captured princes stood at nervous attention while the old prophet of the Jews noisily rolled up the old scroll and returned it to its ornate ark. The lid lowered and the hasp swung shut. All seemed to hold their breath. A great sigh came from the conqueror on his conquered throne. 
A slower intake of breath answered from a hundred chests. So, this Isaiah prophet of yours calls to me by name from generations past. Know your glory, the one God above all, whose name we dare not speak, calls to you in praise from the lips of his true prophet. The ancient prophet and the prince of the wise stood before the great Cyrus with equal measures of royal bearing and holy humility. It unsettled the king. And this Jeremiah, he proclaims seventy years in advance what I have just decided. Yes, your grace. Daniel stood unflinching and calm. A great awe and unsettling churned within the king's chest. So... It is decided, and a new glory for me is chosen. May the God of the Israelites be praised. I hereby declare the glory of the temple of this great God shall be returned. A temple is the throne of a God. May his throne forever be, and his great wonders be known throughout the earth. Furthermore, I establish this day a new order of holy seers in our holy mountains to seek the signs of this great God and proclaim the day of his coming. The king arose. The people bowed with foreheads to the pavement. All except for Daniel, who raised his hands to heaven in great exultation, exclaiming, To the glory of God he has raised up a Messiah! In the midst of the people, a Savior. May his people be forever blessed, and the reign of King Cyrus glorify the God who was, and is, and is to come. The king found himself on his knees with arms uplifted, hardly knowing how he got there. Such a weightiness, such a perfume, such a glory. The others lowered themselves further in submission, prostrate before the prophet, the king, the God of all. And that, my dear boy, is how we came to be. Melchior adjusted his robes and reached for the flask between him and the fire. His young servant, the keeper of the scroll, sat in rapt attention. The seer quenched his thirst and turned to the young man boy, really. And with a twinkle said, oh, there was much more that Cyrus had to say, of course. But most importantly, he had the ancient scrolls copied to a new library and set our forefathers as the keepers of this knowledge. The Sumerian text, Hammurabi's code, the Hebrew prophets, and not least of all, the finest scrolls of our supreme Zoroaster, all the great lights. The boy looked back to the western horizon from their high vantage, above the oasis where the herd of pack camels had filled their veins and were now chewing cuds into fat for their humps. A thousand miles of deserts and draws lay ahead. The packs filled the foreground in the deep star shadow of great palms. Hidden among the supplies, a great treasure of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Melchior took in the splendor of the strand of milk that stretched to both horizons. Soon the lines of those three peculiar stars would arrive in tandem in the Jewish constellation of the Ram. How do you know tonight will be the night? asked the boy. With much thought, defining, and maths, my son, and you can clearly see how they rush toward each other. 
Melchior almost mentioned the truth, that his dreams had grown more and more clear, revealing, and concrete. Now was the time. Soon the others would rise to witness the convergence, the confluence, the confirmation. He could not have slept if he had tried, and so he spent the night answering the boy's many questions. How do you know it will be a king? How do you know what gifts to bring this king? Why are we the ones to go? Oh, my boy, what did you see when we studied each of the stars and their spectra? I recall different colors. That is correct. When we raised the great glass and the eyes of the Vars that caught the light, what did you see on the sands below? The light spread out like a swath, like a shimmer of silk on a bright day. Within the colors, a strong band of one. That is correct, my son. Do you remember the colors of each? The acolyte pondered for a while. He recounted how the wise men had carefully lined up the series of curved glass on iron posts, driving them deep into the sands where they held steady, one series for each of the stars converging on the spot in the head of the ram. One after the other, the Varza was moved between the beams as they came into focus, brighter with each night's measurements and retelling of the legend. Blue, no, no, uh, indigo, or purple, is one. Correct, my son, and what does that signify? Royalty. Yes, said Melchior. So we know that this great star will be a king. And next, gold with a, with a line of green. Yes, and that means divinity and holy fire and new life. That is also correct. A god king who gives new life. And finally, red with a darker line of maroon. Yes. And what does that signify? The boy thought for a few moments. I believe it will be for atonement. But the maroon would signify great suffering. And that would seem to outlast the offering itself. You are correct on both counts, my son. The stars would tell us this great king will make atonement through suffering that will never be forgotten. It was quiet for a few minutes, the fire lowering to coals, as Melchior intended. The black of the heavens grew deeper, the stars more intense for it. The others began to rise. With quiet efficiency and a soft swishing of silk and wool, the other stargazers went about preparing their observation posts. Melchior and his servant had prepared theirs hours ago and quietly watched the others go about their business. With your permission, sir, I don't understand the gifts. What is it you do not understand? I understand that the myrrh must be for the suffering that is red and maroon. It is used in all the great funerals. Yes. Gold for a king, I suppose, which is the royal purple, but what of frankincense? Does that not signify high holiness? Is not its color white? Not red, purple, or gold? You are correct. All three of these stars will arrive in the ram as one. They are truly set apart from all others, and their light increases as they draw near to one another. What do you suppose will happen when the three become one? The boy was not sure if Melchior meant scientifically or philosophically. Perhaps they were the same thing at some level. I'm not sure, was all he could muster. Come, child. You've seen the experiment numerous times. When the lights of red, blues, and greens are combined, what would you expect to see? 
Not wanting to disappoint his teacher, the boy assumed the posture of deep thinking, mostly to buy time, of course, until some stroke of genius invigorated him. After the discovery of these stars, during the weeks of interpretation and preparation for this journey, he had seen the channeled light of many stars pooled in the center of that great observatory. So many paintings of light on the fine marble. The mauves and teals and oranges and smoky ambers. What was it about the three pure lines and their compliments? Ah, yes. White, Melchior nodded with confidence in the answer to an experiment that was soon to commence. His post being the highest and farthest east, the path expected would crest in the lenses of his post first. Another young servant made his way up the dune as swiftly as his sinking legs could carry him, bearing the Varza with his bull's head and prismatic eyes. Melchior smoothed the white sand beneath the lines of lenses and mace and held steady as the glint of starlight began to catch the edge of the second lens. Looking up with bare eyes, he could no longer see the separation of orbs. They had merged. The focal point crossed the threshold of the bull's nose and into the crystals. The sand behind Melchior and the boy erupted into a bouncing rainbow of lights that intensified and merged in a solid line of white. A holler went up from the hill. Melchior quickly handed the Varza to the second servant, cutting off the beam, and sent the boy rushing to the second post. As he ran, a shower of stars streaked from the east to the west, lighting the six hills beyond the camp, and straight in the direction of the ram. All the men gasped at this new sight, yet the great sign of these falling stars did not extinguish as Melchior expected, alighting on the six summits as holy flames. The very desert trembled in their presence, vibrating with some otherworldly energy. Melchior stood agape for moments, not comprehending. Then he saw a figure stir from within the closest flame. The Amesha Spentas, he whispered in stunned awe. Vohumano, the word. Asha Bahishta, the highest and lord of the fire. Kshantra Vairya the beautiful, Spenta Amaiti, the holy and devoted, Haurvatat, the healing waters, Ameritat, the immortal, my boy, all the archangels, do you see them? But the boy was nowhere to be seen. Melchior furtively glanced in every direction, not wanting to waste a moment away from this glorious vision. His robes quivered. He looked down to see the boy cowering within the folds around his ankles. Do not be afraid, child. These are the ones who encompass the throne room of God. Where they are, holiness is near. A great heavenly exultation arose from the peaks around them, impossible for human words. And then, just as suddenly, a shift to the west, and they were off like a shot, an arrow straight to the heart of the land under the ram. Human shouts took the place of the angelic roar. Melchior's eyes readjusted to the beams of white streaming to the sides of the other astrologers. The servant with the Varza ran to the third station with all he had in his legs and will to do. The rest of them simply danced within their slippers from an electric excitement. The ground around the third station lit up with a pure white light from the eyes of the Varza. With three witnesses, a confirmation... And then a spontaneous prophecy. A son! shouted Melchior, 
A king! called Balthazar. A savior! answered Gaspar. This is a fascinating story. I just love how your mind works. Well, <laughs> I appreciate that. It's been a lot of years of it somewhat working. And it's nice to be able to work around you as we study the scriptures together and learn more about not just what happened in the text, but what could happen when people encounter the text. Mm. This whole story is about how people responded to the stories they were told from scripture. Cyrus believed what he was told by the prophets. The prophets believed what God told them about Cyrus. Hundreds of years later, it all culminates in the true temple of God, Jesus being mm-hmm, born. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all interconnected. There's yeah. no doubt about that for me. How you described Cyrus receiving this word of God and mm-hmm. that God had called him by name like we spoke about earlier, how incredible that is to feel God calling you by name, using that to bring Cyrus to his knees, basically, mm-hmm. and he just worships God. It's just honest worship. And the men on their journey, all the way from Persia to Palestine— They're scientists, and they're following a star. They're not just thinking about it, which means they would probably travel during the heat of the day and then Mm -hmm. stop for the nighttime to study. Mm -hmm. At the time of year they would have traveled, Aries, the Ram constellation would have been on the ascendancy, and things would be happening in that. And it was always known by those from that tradition, which was Zoroastrianism, that that is representative of the kingdom that is known to us as Israel and Judah. Mm -hmm. So for their history, their constellations, their cosmology, it all fit the story. I want to ask you a question about one of the instruments. You call it a varza. I haven't heard that word. As I understand it, it is similar to what we would have seen in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they put the staff in the ground and they line it up with the way the sun comes or the Mm -hmm. stars to pinpoint a specific spot. These things seem to be imbued with spiritual powers, deeper wisdoms that they were studying, of course. All of the major scriptures from all the religions. When Cyrus set in motion the things he did, Zoroastrianism is an ancient religion The Zoroastrians were not of the same stream of Moses and the Pentateuch, but they would have known these stories and they would have known these peoples. Mm -hmm. They were wise enough to see truth when it appeared in the skies. They become part of our narrative in the Christian story because they obeyed those signs Mm -hmm. and wonders and gave them context and meaning to those who welcomed them at the Holy Land. And the Varza was one of the tools they would have used, but it's a bit of a mystery, too. Mm -hmm. Understanding what the Varza did, all we know is that it had an eye, an eye that could see. And you think about the kind of scientific discoveries made over thousands of years, that light can be split through a prism into different colors. Even now, we know that the light coming from stars can be divided to show us what's in that star, Mm -hmm. what kind of metals and and gases make up those things. They study the spectrums. All kinds of tools have been developed for us to find the truth hidden within the light. Mm, That's fascinating. These various colors represent specific aspects of the coming Messiah. Mm -hmm. The Magi used that in your story to specifically decide what gifts would be appropriate for this coming Messiah. I that think was that's their job to discern these yeah. things. And of course, they have an encounter with angels along the way. Now, I love that. This whole starry host, Zoroastrians and even the early Jews understood that the stars themselves represented the angelic host and that perhaps they actually were the angels that visited Earth. Even Narnia mm-hmm. turned stars into angelic beings, understood through all all of the mythological literatures, these things were all related and they were actually entities that had Mm -hmm. knowledge and wisdom and they interact with each other. It's not far off for me to imagine that Mm -hmm. these things could be personified and the Zoroastrians themselves had a starry host that all had names 
and all had the responsibilities as archangels before the throne of God. Mm. We have all that imagery in our own scriptures too. The archangels and the four that stand in the presence of God and the elders and the archangels that come to do work here on earth and go back up to heaven. Mm-hmm. I stuck with their cosmology and the names that they understood their angels to be and give them the rush of excitement that comes with the rush to Bethlehem to see what's going to happen there. They knew it had happened by the time they got there. They weren't trying to get there in time for the baby to be born. My guess is that they knew when that baby was born Mm. by watching the signs in the sky. This is just a reminder to keep my mind open to the scripture Mm. and the imagery of it and the beauty of God's imagination in all of scripture, that God would place such beautiful images in your mind to tell this story is a great reminder to me to allow God to do that for me as well and to see things in a different light. And the stories of this Advent season are our gift to you, friends. Mm -hmm. They're available on our website at each of the Compassion Radio broadcast pages corresponding to these stories. This month is all about Advent. Links to download these stories are available on each of those days. So stop by, grab a copy, and read it through again for yourself. The story of the wise men is in Matthew chapter 2. So spend some time with that this week. We've partnered with so many wonderful, intrepid ministries over the years, and we're still working hard to fulfill our faith goals for special projects. If you'll give generously and bravely this year, we'll be able to complete our faith goals to these partners and to end the year where we need it to be. Financially able to begin the new year right without any outstanding debts. It can't happen without you. So I ask, would you help us? Our toll-free phone number is one 800 868 2478. Our mailing address is P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. And our website is, simply enough, CompassionRadio.com. We are deeply grateful for the support and partnership.